0: I'm reminded of the words of Brother Ken Leach sometimes. You've heard me say this many times, I suppose. After the song service, he's holding a meeting for us back in the previous auditorium. And after the song service, uh, he got up and he said, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, I guess you're just not, you're just not goosebumpable. And uh, I feel like that today in our, in our singing. Appreciate. Uh, the good work that those who have led us today have done. Appreciate that a great deal. It's made our worship together uplifting and edifying, at least for me anyway. We meet again tonight at 5 o'clock. Meet again uh, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And we have Bible study on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. So if if you're a spiritually minded person, which I assume that you are, you're here today, you're a spiritually minded person and Want to spend time worshiping together with God's people like we've done this morning? Uh, Plan to be here tonight, 5 o'clock, and then Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Plan to take advantage of the Bible studies next week at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's time well spent. That's good quality time, and uh, we want to encourage that, encourage people to to return and take advantage of that. And again, tonight at at 5 o'clock. I'll invite you tonight, this morning, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about a feature of the book of Revelation that we may not talk about very often, but, but once you have it brought to your attention, you maybe if you haven't seen it before, you'll, you'll see that it's there very clearly. I don't know if there's any New Testament book that's been the subject of as many different approaches than the book of Revelation. I'm not talking about understanding isolated passages, this verse, that verse. What does this word mean in this context? I'm talking about just the approach to the book. We know what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about. We know what Acts is about. We know what Romans and Galatians are about, 1st and 2nd Timothy. I have any trouble understanding what those books are about. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, there's a wide variety of opinion just about what what he's trying to say here. There are those who suggest that the 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 gist of the book of Revelation, for the most part, it's about the future, about events that haven't taken place yet. Looking forward to the establishment of a kingdom on the earth, a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. That's one approach to the book. Another approach takes a very opposite view, that the events discussed in the book of Revelation have all taken place already in the past. In fact, in the distant past. And so they would interpret the book in, in that way. There are those who believe the book of Revelation describes the, the unfolding of church history from the very beginning in the first century and then maybe the rise of Islam eventually and, and the rise of the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation are all discussed and referred to in, in the book of Revelation. There are those who believe that what you have in the book of Revelation is is a sort of a collection of symbols and visions and figures that really just teach eternal spiritual principles, spiritual ideals. In fact, that approach would be called an idealist interpretation. And we're not really to necessarily look for specific fulfillments or correspondences to the information that we have there. And then some take a little from all of those, a little from this. This approach, a little from that approach, a little from another approach. And so just a wide variety of even approaches to the entire book. Usually in our study of the book of Revelation, which we did out here in the auditorium class not too long ago, we try to identify the characters like the four horsemen or the sea beast or the earth beast or the lamb or the dragon. We try to identify the events described, the the opening of the seven seals or the pouring out of the seven bowls. We try to determine its leading or outstanding features like the number 666 or the battle of Armageddon. What's the date of composition? Is it prior to 70 AD or is it more toward the end of the first century? What's the subject matter? Is it the fall of Rome, the fall of Jerusalem or, or something else? And all that uncertainty about the book. Frustrates some to the point that they kind of throw up their hands and, you know, I just, I'm just not that interested in the book of Revelation. I find it very difficult. It's hard to understand. And so I just really focus my attention on other parts of the Bible. Well, in this sermon, we want to bypass all of that. <laughs> We don't want to get caught up in what's the number 666 about or what's going on in the pouring out of the seven bowls and things like that. We want to talk about one feature of the book of Revelation that's going to be useful to all of us, whether we understand those more cryptic portions of the book or not. Again, it might be one that we've really never considered before, at least maybe not in the way that we're going to present it. But once we see it, I think we can clearly see what uh, the, the book of Revelation is getting us to understand at least in this particular aspect of it. As you read through the book of Revelation, as you study the book of Revelation, you'll notice that periodically throughout the book, characters will break out in worship. They're just all, it seems almost spontaneously. Well, that's not true all the time because sometimes their worship is just continuous. They're worshiping God. And so, We're going to look at the book of Revelation today as a guide to worship. So we're gonna pick up on those passages where these characters, these figures, some of them heavenly figures, some of them are the saints. They they, they break out in worship or their worship of God is is highlighted. And we're gonna try to draw from that and learn some things that are gonna help us in our worship. Gonna inform our worship and perhaps make our worship more effective And more pleasing to God, and so, Book of Revelation. We're going to begin in chapter four today. Begin in chapter four, and so you can see we're skipping over chapters one, chapter two, chapter three. Going to go all the way, uh, first of all, to chapter four. Now, what's going on in chapter four? In chapter four, we have a description of God on the throne. It's very much like the description of God's glory we find in Ezekiel chapter 1 or in Daniel chapter 7. And so, in fact, Revelation chapter 4 draws heavily on passages like that Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, Daniel 7. And what John is establishing here, or the Lord is establishing through John, is that God is king over all. God is the king, He is the ultimate king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Uh, the book of Revelation is written to Christians under oppression, Christians under persecution. In fact, state-sponsored persecution. And it may seem to them at times, and it may seem to us at times, that Caesar is in control, that Caesar is on the throne, or that the president and our government is in control of our lives, or another king is has ultimate authority. But none of that is true. God is on the throne. God has ultimate power and ultimate authority greater than the president, greater than our government, greater than Caesar, greater than any earthly or human king. He is, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords. At the sight of God on the throne, the heavenly beings break out in worship. And so let's read a little bit, verse 2. Immediately as in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting was like a jasper stone, and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. There seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So you get the scene, picture that scene in your mind, the throne and the lightning coming out and the thunder going off and these heavenly beings, these four creatures there as well. And then verse 8 says, And the four living creatures, each of them, having six wings full of eyes, around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So here's our first passage that discusses this worship that's going on in heaven. So these four creatures, and we have their description there, they're before the throne, they're perpetually before the throne, and it says they never stop, day and night, they do not cease crying out, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, each of these descriptions of God and each of these words that or directed to God, is worthy of our consideration. God is holy. Why do we worship God? Because He is holy. He is entirely different from any other being. Uh, he, he, uh, he is without sin, and He's holy in that way as well. And the fact that this, it, this idea is repeated three times suggests this is the highest degree of holiness. It's not just partially holy or mostly holy. He is completely holy. And so this threefold repetition or statement of the word holy suggests that He is holy in the highest degree. He is Lord. He is Master. He has all authority. He is God. He possesses divine nature, not human nature. He is deity with all the characteristics that go along with that. He is eternal. He is independent. His existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. He possesses all wisdom. He is present at all places. And so uh, he is God. He has divine nature. He was, he is, and he is to come. That's sort of a New Testament way of saying he is the great I am, isn't it? And so in the past, he is. In the present, he is. And in the future, he is. But it's also suggesting that the Lord is coming. He's coming on behalf of His his people. He's coming to avenge His enemies. He's coming to preserve His people. And so He was, He is, He is to come. But we really want to focus on the idea that He is the Almighty. What's the writer trying to say there, that He is the Almighty God is able to do all He wills to do. Now, He doesn't do everything He is able to do. But whatever He wills to do, whatever He wants to do, He is able to do that. He has all power. He is almighty. It's not a difficult word, is it? It's made up of two very common words, all and mighty. He is almighty. He has all power, able to do all He is willing to do. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26 All things are possible with God. Said in conjunction with the episode concerning the rich young ruler. And remember, he, he went away sorrowful, and Jesus comments to his disciples how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were just mystified. Well, then, who can be saved? Well, all things are possible with God. In Luke, we find kind of the opposite approach. Nothing is impossible with God. On that occasion, it's Mary... The mother of Jesus who say how how can I conceive and have a child? I've never been with a man. Nothing is impossible for God. He is the Almighty. He's called the Almighty in other passages in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 17 there in verse 1 God speaks to Abraham and he identifies himself as the Almighty. I am God Almighty. A little bit later in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 3, there God appears and speaks to, uh, to Isaac and again identifies himself as God Almighty. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And again in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 11 to Jacob, God identifies himself as the Almighty. And so God tells Abraham, I'm the Almighty. He tells Isaac, I'm the Almighty. He tells Jacob, I'm the Almighty. And He tells him that in connection with His promises. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to multiply your descendants. They're going to become like the stars of the heaven, the sands of the seashore. I am the Almighty. I can do it. You know, the, the idea that God is able is an important idea for us to understand and for us to accept. In Romans chapter four and verse 21, there Paul speaking about Abraham, said he believed that God was able to perform what he had promised. You see, He's the Almighty. And so he has the power, He has the authority, simply has the ability to do all that He's promised to do. In the 24th psalm in verse 8, God is described as the king of glory, strong and mighty. In Genesis 18 and verse 14, Abraham asked, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, it simply says, There is nothing too hard for the Lord. When thinking about the, this particular idea, I'm, I'm reminded a lot of times of Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. You remember that passage of three, Ephesians 3, verse 20? Paul says, Now to him who is able, there's our idea again, he's able. To Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in Him, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in all generations forever and ever. See, Paul ends up saying the same thing that the four living creatures say. (laughs) He is the Almighty. He's not only able to do what He says, He's far beyond... (laughs) that's far beyond the ability to do that. Abundant, far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. And so Paul's conclusion is, to Him be the glory. We've gathered together this morning before that God. We've gathered together this morning before the one who's sitting on the throne. And lightning's coming out of the throne and thunders are pealing. According to the description that we have in Revelation chapter 4, these living creatures perpetually, who are in, perpetually in the presence of God, continually praise Him as the Almighty. They never stop night or day. What would we do if we were in the presence of that God? What are you thinking, what, what, what would you do? If you woke up and your eye, you lifted up your eyes and you saw that scene, what would you do? I think he would be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And so that ought to have an impact on our worship, you see. When we gather together, it's not just some sort of formal ritual that we're going through that we don't give very much thought to. We need to understand that we are before the throne, that we are in His presence and that ought to have an effect on the way we worship Him. He is the Almighty, and that ought to impress us. Well, let's go on to another passage, a second passage here in Revelation. This one is also in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. So, sort of just a continuation of this passage. We're going to pick up in verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, To him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, will cast their crowns before the throne, say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And so, again, a continuation of the scene, they're worshiping the one who sits on the throne, but here's a little bit more specific reason, because you created all things. We're worshiping you, we're praising you because you are the creator of all things. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it's very clear, the Bible teaches that we have been created by God. Let us make man in our, in our image after our likeness. And God created man after His image and His likeness. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that He created the man from the dust of the ground. A little bit later, verse 18 and following, we see that He created the woman from one of His ribs. God is our Creator. Jesus agrees with that. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, He asked the Pharisees, Haven't you read that He who made them in the beginning made them male and female? Jesus agrees that God is our Creator. He created us male and female. But this writer or this particular passage says even a little bit more than that. Not simply that God is our creator, but God has created everything. He's the creator of all things. Not including us, but everything else as well. And so in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is at, in Athens, he refers to the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is, the, he is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it, everything in heaven and earth. Look at the 146th Psalm, the 146th Psalm in verse 6. We'll pick up in verse 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And so the Bible affirms without any question that God is the maker of heaven and earth and everything in it. Now, Brother Simon talked a lot about God as creator last Sunday night. You might remember some of the things that he discussed as he... Discuss God as created. There are a lot of things that we could say. God spoke all things into existence out of nothing. There was nothing but God, and then everything came into being that God created. God created things out of nothing. He created all things by His Word. He spoke and said, Let there be light, and there was light. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything was made. And so, God created all things through the Word. The Spirit moved over the face of the waters, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And so, when we say that God created everything, we mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all involved in the work of creation. We could work out the implications of God as Creator. We see His eternal power and divine nature through the things that He's made, Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 17, Paul tells the people at Lystra that God gave them good gifts. He gave them fruitful seasons and rain from heaven and and provided for them the things that they need to sustain their lives. And so God is eternal. God is powerful. God is good. God is wise. We can, we can draw that implication as well. That God is wise. Look at the world He's created. Look at the complexity of it. What, what kind of wisdom does it require to create a world like this? And so He is eternal. He is wise. He is good. He is powerful. And He has authority over what He creates. Well, the clay sage to the potter, what are you doing? <laughs> no. You see, the potter has authority over the clay. And so God is our potter, is our maker, has authority over us. To put all that succinctly, we could say we learn from creation, God is big and we are small. God is really big and we are small. And so no wonder then that we find these heavenly beings bowing before God and praising Him and saying, Worthy art thou, to use the old language, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You've created everything. And because you're the creator, well then we bow before you in worship. Go back to the book of Psalms. Look at the 33rd Psalm. And we'll see again a link between... God is creator and God is worthy of worship. The 33rd Psalm, you are going to pick up in verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And so you can see the link between God as creator, and we we just stand in awe of him. And we honor him, and we adore him because of his work as as creator. And so we worship God because he's the creator, specifically because he's our creator. That's what this passage brings out. You know what's interesting about that? Revelation is not primarily about God as creator. That's not the main message of the book. It's more about God as creator protector, and God as savior, and God as judge. So to me it's even more impressive that in this passage, his work as creator is highlighted. Now that's really almost off the main subject. He's your provider, he's your protector, he's your savior, you know what else he is? He's your creator. And as your creator, he's worthy of our adoration and devotion. We need to remember that when we gather together for worship, like we're doing this morning. We're standing before the potter. (laughs) We're standing before our Maker. And that ought to affect our worship. We're going to look at one more, one more passage this morning and then we'll bring it to an end. Go back to Revelation chapter 5 now, Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to look at uh, beginning in verse 9, Revelation 5 and verse 9. Now what's going on in Revelation chapter 5? Well, the one who's sitting on the throne, the one we've been talking about up to this point, he has a book in his hand. And so the call goes out, is there anyone in, 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 in heaven, is there anyone worthy to come and take the book out of the hand that's of the one sitting on the throne? I, my hand would not go up. You mean me approach the one on the throne and take that out? No, somebody else <laughs> needs to do that. And, and that was the common response. But There was one who was willing to go and take the book out of the hand of the one who's sitting on the throne. Verse 7 says, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who is sitting on the throne. In verse 6, he's identified as a lamb, standing as if it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Well, we know who that is, don't we? That's the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world by his death. You see, here's a lamb that has been slain, and yet he's conquered that death. You know, lambs that are slain don't stand on their feet, do they? But this lamb is standing. Yeah, he's been slain, but he's overcome death. And now he has the authority, the boldness, to approach the one sitting on the throne and take the book out of his hand. Now, the the response of that is... Uh, here in uh, verse 9. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be king, a kingdom and priests to God, And they will reign upon the earth. And so they're worshiping, they're praising the Lamb who went and took the book. And of course the book is going to be opened and we're going to see the contents of the book as we work through the book of Revelation. And it's going to talk about the things that are going to come to pass, shortly come to pass, but the things that are going to come to pass. But simply because He has the authority to take the book, He's worthy of this worship. Now we're going to combine that with the following verses. Verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. And then we're going to continue. Verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven... And on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion, forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And so here, the worship of all, well, really, everything, (laughs) everything. is directed toward not only the one who's sitting on the throne but to the Lamb as well. Why is the Lamb worthy of worship? Well, let's think about that a little bit. Both of them in this passage are worshipped. Both are worshipped equally. They are worshipped together. You see that in verse 13, everything uh, in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, all things in them are saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Both of them are worshipped. Both of them are worshipped equally. Both of them are worshipped together. One is not offered a lesser degree of worship. It's not that the one sitting on the throne gets a higher degree of worship and the Lamb gets a lower degree. No, no. They're, all worshiped. They're both worshipped the same. They are treated as equals. Notice the words used in worshipping the Lamb. To Him belong blessing, honor, glory, dominion, riches, and wisdom. Same kind of words that are used of the one sitting on the throne in chapter 4 and verse 11. Why is the Lamb worthy of our worship? And notice, He's worthy of the worship of those who are in heaven, those on the earth. That's us. On the earth. The people on the earth are worshiping the one sitting on the throne and the one on the Lamb. Equally, Well, that's why He's worthy of our worship, because the Lamb, the Son, is equal to the Father. That's that's the point of the New Testament, (laughs) that the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, is equal to God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus says in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. We're, the, we're one. We're equal. In John chapter 20 and verse 30, we referred to this earlier, I think, in the Lord's Supper comments. Thomas confessed to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus is equal with God the Father. Now, as critics understood this, in John chapter 10 and verse 33, uh, they say that we're, you know we're challenging you because... You make yourself out to be the Son of God. And they got it. They understood what Jesus was saying. Now, they were wrong in their conclusion. He is the Son of God, but they understood the claim. Even Paul makes this kind of statement. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 refers to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the critical issue, isn't it? That's the critical issue of the New Testament. Jesus of Nazareth. This man that walked among us, this man that his fellow townsmen saw grow up. They knew his father and mother. They knew his brothers. and and, and So the critical issue, this man is the Son of God. Do you believe that? This man is equal to God the Father. Do you believe that? And so, since he is equal and we see his equality expressed here in uh, these passages, Rome chapter 5... Because He is equal, no act of devotion, no act of dedication, adoration, no statement of praise or honor, no gift is too great for the Lamb. Now in this particular passage, not only is His equality implied, but there is a reason for worshiping Him stated explicitly. He is worthy of our worship because you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." You see, we worship the Lamb because of what He did for us, because He gave His life for us, because He purchased us so that we might belong to God, and He did that with His own blood. Here's the way Peter expresses it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are redeemed with, not with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless before God. We are redeemed, we are purchased by the Lamb, purchased to belong to God through His blood." When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, He refers to the cup. This is my blood, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. We've been purchased with the blood of Christ, Acts chapter 2 and verse 27. He set forth as a propitiation in His blood, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. We worship Him because of what He's done for us. I'm sure from time to time we think about our former manner of life and our condition, our spiritual condition before we became Christians. The Bible describes it in a passage like Ephesians chapter 2. He says, We are walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. In chapter 1 and verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through His blood. When we come together, it would be a good thing for us to think about where we were at one time in our spiritual condition. Where we were, but where, thanks be to God, we are now. And praise the Lamb that was slain. Praise Him because by His blood we've been purchased by God. So, it's appropriate for us to sing, Worthy of praise is Christ our Redeemer. Worthy art thou. Well, I've got a lot more, but I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) We'll make this a two-parter. How about that? Instead of trying to squeeze it all in in one part, we'll make it a two-parter. And so next time i preach, will be next Sunday night, we'll, we'll continue this, looking at Revelation as a guide to worship. And you can see, this doesn't have anything to do with all those challenging, mystical, mysterious parts of Revelation. We, we can all see this, and I hope we can all benefit from it. And so we'll continue these thoughts next week. Let's stop and pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to gather together to worship you. We bow before you today, God, acknowledging that you are God Almighty, that you have all power, that you have all authority, that you are big, that we are small. We praise you, God, for being the creator, for being our creator, but the creator of all things. We stand in awe. We are amazed by that and we bow before You in worship, in praise, in adoration. Our Father, we're so thankful that Your Son came into this world, sacrificed Himself on the cross, became the Lamb, the necessary sacrifice, the Lamb slain for our sin, and that by His blood we've been purchased and now we belong to You. And so, Father, as we praise You, we praise Him as well. We praise him just as we praise you, just as we read in the book of Revelation. And we praise him because he is God and because we've been purchased by his blood. Our Father, we pray that we will take seriously our worship, that we will enter into worship as sincerely as, as we possibly can. And we want to worship you in spirit and in truth from the heart. In a way that praises you and glorifies you and pleases you and we know father if we do that we'll be benefited and we'll be uplifted by it so father we're thankful for this opportunity we praise your name today help us to praise and glorify your name throughout the rest of our lives we ask these things in jesus name amen